this is your USA Profiles. I'm your host, Abigail Jacobs, joined on this episode by Leith Makewa and Margaret de Garunyakwastanda, two local artists who will be joining the Yurdiwase podcast team, lending their beadwork expertise to your listening catalog. I was able to learn where they got their start, what goes into being a career beadworker, and a taste of what to expect in their upcoming podcast. So the ladies in studio with me today are not only uh, getting their own crash course on podcasting, but we're getting an introduction to Margaret de Garunyakwa Standup and Leith Makewa. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having us. So you're getting ready to embark on a journey with the Yurdiwase team, and uh, you're going to do your own podcast. But before we jump into that, we want to get to know you as Gonwageronu, as part of our community. And uh, if you could just tell us a bit about yourselves, who are your parents, of course, who's your mother, who's your father, and uh, how would people most recognize you and your family here in Kahnawake? Hello, everybody. My name is Leith Makiwa. I've been living here in the community of Kahnawake since um, I was in grade one. I, I'm not originally from the community, but I've lived here the majority of my life. Um, my stepfather was the late Arnold Goodleaf, and my mother is uh, Jessica Hill from Oneida, First Nations of the Thames. Um, I'm currently raising my family here with my husband. Um, I think people would know us because um, I guess maybe we're a little bit outspoken in terms of language and culture and different things like that. Um, I have four kids, and um, I've been doing beadwork within the community for almost like 20 years, but professionally, for about maybe 13 years. So uh, yeah, I'm really excited to be here and get started. <laughs> <laughs> so I am Margaret Agurhiakwa Standup, um, born and raised in Gunawage. My mother is Geraldine Standup and my father is Winston Standup. I'm a mother of two. I'm the owner of Traditions, the gift shop here in the community. I'm also a bead worker. Uh, I've been doing, I guess, professionally as well, maybe about 10 years-ish. Yeah, that's about it. Leith, you said that you came here uh, like in about grade one. What do you remember most about coming to Gunawagi and growing up here? I think um, family. I mean, family was always a big part of my life, but um, growing uh, coming to the community, um, seeing family everywhere I went. And um, the good thing about um, coming to Gunawaga, I think, was the fact that um, I had a really nice family to come to in the sense that I wasn't necessarily born into the family, but they've accepted me as their own, really. And um, that's really where I have my contact, my connection to Gunawaga is through that. And so I was, um, I was really fortunate to be able to have the experience like that. And um, yeah, so uh, that's that's pretty much it. Like family, and I also went to school here at Gurunuha in uh, Mohawk language. So um, that's what I, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> I've never been asked that question before. So uh, <laughs> Good. We'll keep doing things like that. <laughs> what did you guys love most about, like, what did you guys like to do growing up in Gunawage? What would you think, if somebody said, what was your childhood like in Gunawage? What was it like for you? What are your memories? For me, it was a lot different, I think, than it is now, like in terms of maybe the safety and or the ideal of safety, that kind of thing. But uh, for me, I lived 
my life on my bike, just out with my friends. Um, there was kind of like a, like a, a general idea that, okay, I, when the street lights come on, that's when you go home, like those kind of things, you know, people, uh, my mother would say, okay, well, check in every so often. So for me, that's how my childhood was just always out with my friends, always kind of all over the place, you know, on our bikes and things like that. So that's like one of my more favorite memories growing up, you know, it, we had a little bit of freedom, I guess, to go about our day and do as we pleased. <laughs> so what do you um, see as like similarities or differences now that you have your own children who are growing up here? How do you, do you ever like, you know, back in my day, <laughs> you know, like that. We used to just be able to come home when the streetlights came on. How, how do you find it's different from your experiences and now for your children? I think the main difference for my family is that, um, my children are Mohawk speakers, and I didn't grow up that way. I, I did go to Mohawk Immersion, but I'm, I'm not a speaker. Like I'm not a first language speaker. So that was a big thing. And um, I think in terms of looking and seeing how different it is, it's seeing how, it's a, how they're a minority in the sense. Hmm. They're all fortunate, ex with the exception of one, unfortunately, who had had friends or have friends who are language speakers as well. I have one son who there was not necessarily somebody in his age bracket that he could talk to okay in the sense but my all my other children all have friends who are first language speakers so that mm. was that was good i think too when margaret was mentioning about like the freedom and different things like that is my children all grew up on the farm for the majority of their life so the mm -hmm. access to being able to ride bikes and do those things was a little bit more limited um maybe even a little bit more sheltered but um I grew up hanging out with my friends, having sleepovers, making mud pies, just different things like that. Like those are those kind of memories that I remember riding bikes and things. But um, I think in terms of like, well, technology for sure is something different. And I think also a major one is the access to family in the sense of like going to see your grandmothers or going to see your relatives and different things like that. I don't think it's as, I don't see it in my family, immediate family, as prevalent as it was before hmm. or maybe the memory of it is so impactful that I remember it that way but it wasn't necessarily so I don't really know because you don't necessarily know how to objectify something like that when you've lived it so but that's what I see as a little bit of difference and similarity. Cool and you had mentioned you know you said uh, most people probably know me and my husband because we're we're outspoken and we're you know you you stick to your guns about your beliefs and you said that you raised your family all as first language Ganyakeha speakers. How was that? Uh, what what inspired you to come to that decision for your family? It wasn't choice myself. I mean, in terms of it wasn't my choice, it wasn't my initiative. It was my husband. He yeah. was, um, he learned how to really speak when he was in his late teens and uh, early twenties, I guess too. And um, he made the conscious choice that it was important for him. And it's like, you have to sink or swim, either you're going to get on or you're just going to travel side by side. Like it's one or the other. And so I decided, well, I have, to, it's, it was the important thing to do. It was a sacrifice I was willing to make. And I, I believe it's a sacrifice because there's a lot of things, there's a lot of uncomfortability that you feel when you don't necessarily know exactly what to say in a situation, or you don't know if you're saying it correctly, or if you're doing the right thing, because I've never seen that aside from there's another family who I'm pretty close with and I've seen them raise their children as first language speakers. And it's inspiring and intimidating in yeah. the sense that you want to do as well as they are doing, but you're not them. 
Yeah. And you can't judge yourself against them, even though like that's the ideal. I've never seen that outside of that as a norm. Mm -hmm. So I think to be, like I had said, mentioned earlier, minority in the sense, there wasn't a lot of, I don't want to say there wasn't a lot of support because there was, but in the terms of like camaraderie, it was limited. Mm -hmm. And so the struggles that you have raising children differently than other people, Hmm. whether it's language or even like the belief of um, discipline or parenting style, for all sure. other things like that. Sometimes it can be isolating, but it's what you make of it that really counts, right? So mm-hmm. you have to focus on allies and different things like that and trying your best to do, it's, like you said, like stick to your guns kind of. And it was difficult in the beginning. I think for myself, it's difficult now because as children get older, the conversation and different things that they want to talk about. I tend to fall back on English, unfortunately. Okay. So my my children speak entirely in Ganyangeha with their father, and he yeah. only speaks Ganyangeha to them. Sometimes when he's mad, he might <laughs> have a little bit of uh, Jirhasa English in there. But for me, when I want to have like an in-depth, my fallback is English. Mm-hmm. So that's like what I know, and that's how I can communicate with my that's how I that's how I can communicate properly. Yeah, to make sure that nothing is being misunderstood yes. or but their first language is Ganyageha. So <laughs> I have to sometimes <laughs> translate even in like that's the thing is like you know like when you're trying to explain concepts sometimes edu- educational concepts they don't necessarily understand what the word is like they might huh. there was a word let's say 2 years ago my son asked what's that mean I'm like Oh my God, like you're 12 years old. You don't know what that word is. It's because they never were exposed to that kind of language. Yeah. So it's it's that kind of thing. And then you have to decipher what it is academically in Ganyet Geha sometimes for them to fully understand. So that's where like the catch-22 comes. Yeah. It's because the world around us is revolving in English. And so you have to like try to catch up because unfortunately at the rate, I don't know if they'll catch up to this. Hmm. You know, like. It's slow and steady, but it's worth it. It's slow and steady. It's worth it to do whatever it is you can do. Yeah. You know, like, you know, some people can't necessarily or don't have the time or just maybe just don't want to. And that's okay to say, I want to dedicate my life to this or, you know, really um, try and go to school and do all these other things. The, me- the best you can do is what you can do. Yeah. And that's all there is to it because the impact of it on somebody who hears you, like I have a five-year-old who thought that the gas attendant spoke was a fluent speaker because the gas attendant would say ona yeah and so he was we went up he's like oh yeah he speaks like i'm like well technically he does he said, oh, that's okay. <laughs> so it makes an impact on people you yes. know and it and it's it makes it more accessible and easier for people to feel like it's a part of them mm-hmm. no and that's and it's important you know and and i think the the movement that's coming into gatnawage and like uh, Margaret, you went to the Radiwana uh, Nirat immersion program, and so you're a speaker as well. And and your mother, I know, like you were teaching at Cattery uh, School for a while, and I remember you would like, I have to check this, like how you <laughs> said, you know that that the translation and making sure that you're saying it the right way, because like with any language, you know, like there's that that strange translation where, <laughs> especially for Ganyageha, it's like this big seventeen word <laughs> explanation to just say like. I don't know. A single word. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I think it, and it is, it's very inspiring. Like just that little bit that anybody can do. And to see that for, for your family, like it's 
very brave and, and very inspiring. So I think that that's really cool. Thank you for talking about that part with us as part of your guys' background. <laughs> Um, Margaret, your family also is regarded in the community as as like respected spiritual speakers. Your mother is respected spiritual speaker here. And how was that for you growing up? How did it shape your your growth and maybe your outlook as far as, you know, because I mean, for for other families, maybe they don't have that that same kind of connection necessarily. Did it make a big difference for you growing up? Not really. Really? Okay. <laughs> to be honest, I didn't really think or look at it any other way. Like, to me, it wasn't a thing. I don't know. It wasn't anything. It was just her job. That's what she did. Mm -hmm. The only part that I think affected me the most was that there were times where her job had to take her away. Hmm. So it was like her work and, you know, things like that. So, but other than that, it's only now getting older, you know, like traveling, going places. And if I introduce myself with my last name everyone's like do you know Geraldine stand-up <laughs> so like, yes I do it's my mother so then they want the whole story they want the you know and it's and it's funny because people will put people on pedestals sometimes where she's you know they they know her as she's a spiritual healer she's a supporter you know things like that but to me that's my mother yeah. <laughs> you know that's the same lady that told me to come home at a certain time and <laughs> she disciplined me, me and <laughs> <laughs> so it's different for me it's a whole different view from my my point you know yeah. I I know her personally I've lived with her you know so it's it's a uh, yeah it's it's funny it's it's just weird sometimes listening and talking with people about you know their perspective but it's also nice. It's nice to hear um, people's stories, you know, and how she's helped and what she's done for different people. So that's, that's the nice part, too. Cool. And now uh, the both of you are, as you mentioned before, you've been able to be professional beadwork artists. And um, we're, your podcast that you're looking to do is going to center around beadwork. How did you ladies find your way to beadwork? What got you started? Mm, for me, I've always done art, different arts and things like that. I always dabbled here and there and all kinds of different things. I have a confession. Oh, God. <laughs> I, God. So how I really started with beading was I found old strawberries, the stuffed strawberries. Oh, okay. And I took it apart to see how it was made. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's like blasphemy. No. Your mother's probably like, my antique family like her grandmother, I think. It was oh, like yeah. my great-grandmother stuff. Because she was the beater in our family. My grandmother and my mother both didn't do it. It was my grandmother's mother who was a bead worker. Um, so they, there was always like little things here and there. So, um, yeah, I just kind of took a liking. It was all in those, you know, the cookie tins hanging around the house and whatever. <laughs> so I found a strawberry and I found it really interesting how it was put together. So I for me, the way I work is I need to see how things are done, how they're made for me to understand how to redo it. So, yeah, yeah I took it apart. And then I just started playing around with stuff like that, like whatever beads were hanging around, you know, and they were all older. Then finally I started buying my own and just dabbling there, like here and there. That was where the interest started. So I started doing it for some time, um, just on my own. And then, then Merit Cross was doing classes. So I jumped into those too. And that's where I started learning how to really make um, like moccasins and clothing and well, not clothing, but like wearable items, that mm -hmm. kind of thing. Yeah. My first pair of moccasins I ever made, I was about 18. 
And unfortunately, I I don't even remember what they look like. They were probably hideous, but <laughs> I was proud, man. I Heck wore yeah. them, but I left them. I, we went to a sing in Allegheny and I left them in the hotel room and oh, no. I've never seen them again. So I was so upset. <laughs> that was the last time I ever seen them. But I would have loved to see what they look like now. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that's kind of my start with all of it. Yeah. Unlike Margaret, um, None of my family members were beadwork artists. Um, my father's family are Hopi potters. And my grandmother was, my mother's mother was excellent at doing almost everything with her hands. And I think that combination is kind of where I got some of my tactile skills in terms of like being crafty, needlepoint and different things like that. And as luck would have it, my mother in... The late 90s opened a small bead shop here in Gunawaga. Oh, no way. Yeah, it was called Blue Sky Bead Studio. And um, she had local beadwork artists come in. She sold beads and they also did classes. And I took a class uh, with Robin Delarone, I believe it was. I think that's who taught the class. Yes, it was because she ended up teaching me how to do raised beadwork in the sense that uh, she was teaching a class about beaded crowns. Okay. And everything on the on the crown I beaded had to do with being Hopi. So it was a Hopi sun and there was different like thunderclouds and different things like that, like that of nature. But it was all flat work. And I remember very, very faintly having this dialogue in my head like, okay, I got to do something that's kind of mimicking what it is she's teaching in this class because she's teaching raised beadwork, but nothing on my crown is anything beaded. So I started by raising the feathers on this, on this Hopi sun. I did that. And, I, and then I was like, okay, I can do this. And I wanted to bring corn in because corn obviously is important for Ho the Hopi people and also for us. So I thought, okay, I'm going to put corn in. And I couldn't make the corn raised. I was like, I can't do it. And I remember her, it was so vibrantly how she said, she goes, you just got to do it, Leaf. You just got to put the beads on. And she would say, you got to make it you got to put more beads in the actual distance that you have. Just mm -hmm. do it. Like, come on. And I'm like, come on, just do it. Come on, Robin, just do it for me. Come on, come on. <laughs> and by this time, like all the women kind of who took the classes, like it was like always, always seemed to be the same people taking the classes. And so it was like kind of a com camaraderie kind of thing. And I didn't, I wasn't living here in the community at the time. I was going away to university. I was studying at university. Okay. So I would come back like on like summer break or whatever. And so this is when that class was. And I just remember her like, come on, you can do it. And then I did. I mean, you can tell which one she did and which one <laughs> I did, but I, I did it. I never finished. I have the actual crown at my office in, in my studio. And oh, yeah. Yeah. So I never did it. I never finished it. And um, because it, it just, I don't know, I just, I just never finished. Yeah. I guess eventually I will. So that was my first exposure to like real raised beadwork, hmm. like a class. And then... I was like away at school and I came back again and then um, I learned how to do a picture frame and those same, same ladies who would gather and take classes after the classes would end still wanted to participate and do beadwork. So a bead group developed Yeah, that still is beading today. We no. not, we're not necessarily beading in the frequency as we did before. Like before we would do like weekly, I would say when my son, my young, my, when my oldest son was born about 19 years ago. That's when we were in full-fledged, like every week we would come together and stuff like that. But now because times are different, people have different jobs and different things like that. 
that we don't get together as much, obviously during the pandemic too, like that's one of the things, but we would all get together and bead. And that's where the majority of my learning came from for raised beadwork is from these ladies. Now, of course, I was not at any like professional level like they are, or even how I was, how I am now, like, you know, and I consider like the late Gail Albany Montour, one of my, the highest mentor I've ever like encountered in in the sense that her meticulousness and her attention to detail and different things like that really inspired me to do my best. And I was lucky to have her to teach me some some tricks and different things like that. And I'll be forever grateful to her for, for that. But just those ladies, like the la- every lady who's part of that group have, has added to my repertoire of style. That's amazing. And I love that, that you guys still get to connect and come back together with those people that you first learned with. Like yeah. That is a connection that made such an impact and, and still lives. Yeah. I and that's beautiful. Yeah. It's like a beadwork family. You know what I mean? And then there's like Margaret and there's different other people who come in and like they add to your like your beadwork family. And yeah. And just, uh, yeah, it's, and then there, there was, and then there's another group of women that I would get together with and we beaded too. And there's just like all this, the fun stories and different things like that. And I would, I started my beadwork journey by making gifts and different things like that. And then as I got better and better, I started selling things and then going to shows and different things like that. So And so now, like you said, then you start getting into your your professional career with it where you're getting recognized for things. You know, people start seeing your work and and how how like you said, meticulous and beautiful and all these things. And you've both had work submitted to different like exhibits and competitions. Uh, how was it getting yourself through that process, like reaching that point and, and doing your your applications and the reviews? What was that like? God, it's scary sometimes. <laughs> I think like like you said, it's scary. It's the application process itself, like saying, OK, am I going to be able to do this? Because it's not. Oh, yeah, I'm just going to throw some things together and just go and whatever. Well, if you're going to a competition that's far away, one, you have to consider like how much it's going to cost to go to stay there, to fly there, to drive there, do whatever it is you got to do. What are the kinds of competitions? Like I've heard like the Santa Fe market, right? Like I've never been yet. Eventually I will get there. But uh, pre-pandemic, I was applying and everything until I realized I needed an American social security number, which I didn't have. Um, And by the time, of course, I dragged my my feet on the whole application, I wouldn't have had enough time to Mm. submit it and whatever. So that's something that I have to do. So for me, I've never been yet. It is uh, a goal I would like to try to. But it is scary. It's the idea of even as an established beater, an artist or whatever, there's always doubts. So and especially at something that's a little bit more prestigious, where now you're you're competing against a lot of different Nguyen people who are going there across all over the place, like North America. So for sure, you want to have your stuff prepared. You want to make sure that what you are showing you're comfortable with, that you feel this is like some of my top work, you know, just the whole idea of what you're designing, you know, is is plays into everything. So yeah, it's not something you just grab like, oh yeah, I have this like sitting on the shelf. Let me throw this in. <laughs> like you have, for me, it's something that I prep, you know, I would have to design and sit and think about for quite some time before just <laughs> throwing it on in there, you know? So yeah, it can be a little scary for me anyways. <laughs> I th- I think one thing that I didn't realize when I first applied, well, I, I never thought I would get in cause like it's, a, you have to apply to get mm-hmm. in and then you get in and then you're like there and whatever. One of the things that I never thought about 
was actually how I would articulate what it is I was doing Hmm. or what my inspiration was. Because people want to know, like, people are like, oh, my God, that's everyone. Like, you know, I mean, I'm not pretend I'm not trying to be pretentious to saying people are like, oh, my God, your stuff is so good. But that's what people say, Mm -hmm. because like when they see something they like, that's what they say. But it's all relative, right, to who's looking at it. So they'd be like, oh, and then they want to know your whole story. And you're like, oh, (laughs) my goodness. Like, how am I going to be able to? So it's the schmoozing part of it. It's Mm. like it's the sell of the I mean, yes, I want to make things that are beautiful, but I also want to make money. Like I want to sell. That's like what I said. I said, you have to take into account how much it costs to go and all these different things. And you want I want to make money there. That's one of my intentions. And so when I make a piece. When I make a big piece, because I always try to make one big thing. Okay. The intention is, is that I want to make it good so I can sell it. Yeah. Because what I normally do is I normally do custom work. So it's always for somebody. Mm-hmm. But when you're going to a show, it's a different feeling because it's not for somebody. It's for who knows and whatever. So I find it very hard to attach real feeling to it because normally I'm making things for like, Oh, Abigail wants this. Okay, Abigail's like this, and this is her, and this is her whatever and her vibe, and I want to ha- reflect that. When you're making something that's so abstract, not yeah. nothing to do with any anybody, any soul, it has to be accessible. It has exactly. to be yeah. And you don't want to, like you said, you don't want to like limit it to a certain kind of color because some people might not like that kind of. So the different things like that. But I think um, it's a fine line. And like Margaret said, you don't just take things off the shelf. But sometimes those things off the shelf might sell and be great but you have to have things to sell you Mm -hmm. know like you don't want to go there with one thing and like it doesn't sell and you're like oh man i just spent four thousand (laughs) dollars coming here and Mm -hmm. i have nothing to show for it but it's also the networking like you get to meet different people and different things like that and i've been lucky to have success at markets and i think the main thing i realized is that it's not the be all end all you know, and I do enjoy beating for that purpose, but I strive and I get my momentum from beating things for people yeah. as gifts or as just, I think that you're great. Here you go. And people are like, oh my God, like, why are you doing that? Because I like that. Like, you know, it makes me feel good. I feel I do my, I don't, I'll say it. I feel I do my best work that way. Yeah. And I and just. I'm the complete opposite. And really? it's not. That's so cool. And it's not, it's not money driven, unfortunately. Unfortunately, I don't get the payout like that, but that's not what I'm looking for. Like, you know, like, yeah, I just, I enjoy more so much. more creative fulfillment. It's more the. It's not even the creative fulfillment. It's just the acknowledging of that person who's doing mm. so much thing. So I just, that's what I really like. I, mm-hmm. it's, I do my best work that way. Cool. But now I'm have to, well, you know, the opposite. <laughs> but I also have to pay the bills. <laughs> <laughs> so you have to give and take and different things like that. But I think, I think people should realize that just because you sh- go to shows, it doesn't mean that that's the only way that you can be successful. Hmm. You know what I mean? Like, I don't believe, like, I'm glad I'm able to do that. Yeah. It's also a very, very competitive. You can, I'm very competitive <laughs> by nature <laughs> and I feed off of that. It's not the best thing. It's not the like the my best quality at all. But um, when you go into that situation, some people don't like to have that feeling. And so they don't do those kind of things. 
but doesn't mean they're not successful, you know? So I don't want people to think that I'm sitting here like, oh my God, I'm so great because I went to the show. No, it doesn't necessarily, Kate, that that other number one beater could have not been there and that's why I won, hmm. you know? So it's all relative to the situation. Yeah. And I like to tell people who are just starting off that there's a market for everything. There's a buyer for everything. People, pe- people will see it and they'll want it and don't be discouraged because yours doesn't look like mine or mine doesn't look like yours or mine was cost this and that's that's nor here nor there. It's it's not about that. Yeah, everybody's at their own level, and and there's like you said, there's always uh, somebody who's going to to like it or dislike it, and that's life. You know, yeah. <laughs> somebody's gonna like it, somebody's not gonna, and everybody's just got to roll their own way and keep on their own their mm-hmm. own path. It's funny, like what you were saying though. For me, I'm I'm almost the opposite, but I think it's because now within the last maybe like eight years or so. I've been dedicated to doing orders. So now I'm like done. I am done, done <laughs> with orders. So for me, it's always giving giving my expression to everybody else, but then it doesn't leave enough time for my own. So for me, it's the opposite right now. So this June is my actually my last orders where I'm <sighs> no longer, I've already shut the door, but I do have things to fulfill like yeah. for June. But then after that, yeah, I'm, I'm retired. I'm, I'm only doing things for me after that because I haven't had time to do anything. Like there's, there's been all these competitions or showings. I have nothing. I have nothing to show because everything that I have that's being worked on is for somebody, somebody else. else. So right now I was like, I can't get back to it. And it, it kind of, after a while, I could feel like resentment almost like mm. setting in where I was like, and just not wanting to do anything. Cause I'm like, I, I just don't want to anymore, you know? So um, for me, I've noticed that once I start doing things again for me, that's where the creativity comes in. That's where, I guess, I, like to a certain extent, like I just do what I want to do. So whether people like it or not is totally fine with me. I don't care. I, I need to get this out of my system. Yeah. <laughs> so take it or leave it, basically, you know. So that's kind of where I'm at now with, uh, I guess, my my beadwork. I would like to get back to it eventually, you know. Who but, knows? Yeah. The world keeps spinning and you exactly. never know where it's going to bring you around. Yeah. So that's kind of where, where I sit right now with most of it. So I am looking forward to it. I'm like... I have a list. I have about maybe seven things on the list that need to get finished. And I'm like, yes, this one's done. I'm getting closer <laughs> to because then to I don't, freedom. Yes, because then there's no guilt behind doing pieces for me anymore. Because every yeah. time I pick something else up, then I'm like that little thing's like floating around like, well, you got other things to do, you know, put that thing back down. So, yeah. So that's really interesting to hear the two ends of the spectrum, because one of my one of my questions for you was like, how does it feel to be able to make a living and be in demand? And where you're saying like, even though it's it's good because, you know, you got to pay the bills, but mm-hmm. it's also a little taxing. It is. It can be um, for it. It is definitely a, a learning curve, though. You have to you have to know your limits. And I had to learn that, I guess, the hard way by taking too too much on at some points. I think for me, it's just the duration of how long I've been taking orders and doing it that I just need a break now. Mm. But yeah, it's like I left a full time job to pursue this. You know, like I up and left. I just literally woke up one day and said, I can't do this anymore and quit my job and then started. This is now my job, you know. So, yeah, it's become my outlet. It's become my source of sanity, I guess, you know, (laughs) but it also it does pay the bills. You know, it is something that we've worked hard on. We've worked for a very long time to I guess uh, hone our skills. But and, and it's something that you continue to learn, you know, like 
I've made millions of moccasins and here I am still changing my pattern, still learning how to do different things like new right? techniques. The other day you were like, oh my God, what's yes. my pattern? <laughs> yeah. So you learn different things like constantly, you know, it's always evolving to it and it's always changing. So there's always something new to learn and, and, and still trying to keep your style and your, you know, what, what makes your beadwork yours and, you know, so. And so now like you brought up, uh, you had left your full-time job and you went into this venture. Um, you've been able to turn this work into an opportunity, not only for yourself, but like you have Leith who comes into your shop and you guys work together and you have other local artisans and entrepreneurs at your shop traditions. How does it feel to be able to incorporate your fellow comrades into this success? It's really nice. Honestly, it didn't completely start out that way like the idea was first and foremost I need to pay my bills <laughs> that's that's really how it started I always wanted to do something with my art to go further and things like that I had the idea of like selling art and selling different things I do have artist friends I have other beadwork friends I have you know other friends who do um, have their own businesses but maybe based out of their homes and things like that so in the beginning it was more asking closer people like do you want to sell your items at the store do you want to you know and it helped me out in the sense that people aren't going to come into my shop and there's five things in there you know <laughs> like so that's kind of how it started but then it just kind of blew up from there you know it was like I had more people asking and then I started reaching out to people and things like that so yeah it kind of like blew up and snowballed like really quick like to now where there's maybe a hundred, maybe more artists within the shop. So, and it's always changing. There's always different people coming in. Always, you know, sometimes people are not creating anymore. So it's, it's always uh, different, but yeah, been a crazy ride though. <laughs> it's been a really busy, like, because in the beginning when Margaret opened her shop, we would always talk like our shop, yeah. <laughs> we should do this. But the 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 most cr the craziest thing about the relationship between Margaret and I is that it started maybe only five years ago, mm -hmm. which is so crazy. Like my mother organized um, a, a small trip to do like a demonstration in Ottawa. And my mother was like, who do you think should come? And I'm like, well, we should invite so-and-so and we should invite Margaret. Like, like, let's go and whatever. So that's how we kind of met, right? It was the first time really like really met, which is really totally odd. And then I don't know, we had talked about something or something was going on. And I, 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 I messaged her. I said, Hey, would you be interested in uh, renting out a space at your store? She didn't even like sign the lease yet. And I was like, already <laughs> asking, when you get your store, can I have a space there? Because I used to work in a unit in the Jacobs Hardware and I knew how the actual layout was. I know there's like a basement and there's an upstairs office. So I thought like, you know, they're much, she's not going to have the whole store, <laughs> you know? And she was like gracious to say, yeah. And so that's how really it started. Like there was, there was old paint on the walls when I first like went there and we were help sending, I helped her set up. And all now these, there's like 10, 10 different, different paint jobs. <laughs> yeah. But that like when she said like she opened her doors to, or how you said she opened her doors basically to other artists and coming in, it really is a welcoming place. And I wouldn't be, I wouldn't still be there renting off her if that wasn't the case. And now I sell the beads there and different things like that. And it's, it's inspiring. And I shared this earlier and I'll share it with you now, Margaret, is that I saw a woman yesterday at the beads sale at the uh, beadwork and velvet sale. And she said, you know what? She goes, I was telling my son, I have to show Margaret and Leith this. And he's like, why do you got to show them? 
She goes, I just have to, I just have to show them. And she got her phone out and she started showing me the things she made. And I was like, oh my God, that's so nice. Like, you know, and then she started talking about different projects she wanted to make and different things like that. And she told me this story and I said, oh yeah. And then she kind of walked away for a second and she turned back. She goes, you know why I have to tell you? She goes, because you and Margaret inspire me. No. And I think (laughs) that one of the, and because she comes in the store often and we're there, that's what happens is that. We often, we often, ha- we often, and Margaret probably has more conversation with the client, the customers, because she's on the floor, but I'm not very often on the floor. I'm upstairs just doing my own thing. Is that we have conversations, in depth, personal conversations with people that are just inspiring to us, that help people out, like just listening ear, different things like that. And we had this conversation with a customer who came in last week is that it's such a good vibe. There's such good energy there. It just makes you comfortable. And so I think that's really what is really nice about traditions is that you can come in and yes, browse a store and hopefully buy something, but you can interact and have a really great conversation with somebody and just like, you know, maybe bring light to somebody's day or some, or maybe Margaret or I bring light to your day. Like, you know, that's, or you chit chat with other customers. So I I think that's one of the one things that I really enjoy. And like I said, I'm not often in the store, but because it's not my store. Just for the record, Traditions <laughs> is not Leith Muckywood's store. People often think that I sell my beads there, but it's really Margaret's stand-up store. And so it's it's just a really nice, cozy place. And I think it's brought a lot of light to Gunnawaga. And I'm not just saying that because Margaret's sitting here. I think it's because it gives the opportunity, like she said, for people who have interest and who might be on the fence of like really putting themselves out there, it gives them the opportunity to do that in a safe space. Well, that's like, and I mean, one of uh, our previous episodes here with Profiles, we spoke with Austin Lazar, who's uh, the owner of Rowies. And he's like, one of my first places that I got to sell my my salsa and my pickles and stuff was at Traditions that mm-hmm. I was just like, hey, you want to put some jars of my stuff in your store, you know? <laughs> yeah. And like, and it happened. And I think that that's so amazing as a place that can support other local entrepreneurs, you know? And it's not just, like you said, it's not just like, oh, come in and and it's just my five beadwork items that I've recently done. <laughs> yeah, There's clothing, you know, there's, there's the ribbon outfits and there's maple syrup and there's, you know, crystals and soaps and, and lotions and like all these different things that all these talented people within our community are creating and, and making, trying to make a living off of. And you can find them in this one hub that, that, you know, like you said, Leith has this, this good energy. So it's a success. Yes. Congratulations. Thank you. On your story because it, it was. Yeah, Yeah. it's it was pretty crazy, though, like in the beginning, because I remember like trying to open up the doors and I was like, oh, my God, what are we doing? I remember, well, one of my biggest helpers and support when I was opening was uh, Arlie Goodleaf and Trisha, because they had just gone through the process with uh, Crystal Connections. And I remember sitting in Trisha's kitchen with uh, with her and her mother and we're sitting there and. I was like, Arlie, you know what? I almost called you the other day. I said, because I was like ready to quit. (laughs) And she's like, why? What was going on? And I was like, I went to the store, not my store, but to like just to shop. I said, I went to look for a register and I couldn't even pick a register. And I was like, (laughs) if I can't pick a register, how am I going to run a store? Like, what am I doing? I'm going like crazy. I'm going, I'm insane. Like this ain't going to work. I was freaking out. And it was like two weeks before I was supposed to open. So they were a real good sounding board to me too. They always like, you know, help me and calm me down when I was going a little bit crazy. And uh, they had so much good um, advice to give and just 
you know, helping me through the process and um, business wise and everything, emotional, like uh, support. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, when I opened that store at first, the first week I set up, there wasn't that much. And I was nervous. I was really nervous because I was like, I really don't want this to crash and burn, you know. And then it just literally blew up. I reached out to a few more people and it was like maybe two people. I thought, oh, well, you know, you guys sell sweaters. You want to, you know, you can bring them. Little did I know they had so much. And then more and more people brought more and more pieces. So then it really helped and filled up the space and things like that. And yeah, so then that's how it kind of went from there. But yeah, it was uh, the beginning of it all was pretty crazy. Just the idea of when I left my job. I really just cut all ties and had absolutely no idea what I was going to be doing from then there, you know. And I think it was like a few days after I had really decided not to continue teaching at Cattery that I was going through Facebook and I was scrolling and I had seen Jacob's Hardware post that they were offering a unit. And I kind of passed it. I scrolled right through it and I was like, for a split second, I thought, could I open this shop? Like I had always wanted to, that, but this was a dream that I thought when I retire, when I'm in my 60s, <laughs> I'll do something, you know, that was my idea. But for future, not now. So I just continued scrolling. I was like, no, that's crazy. But then it came back up in my feed and I'm like, it's a sign. <laughs> so I called, I called and um, Cynthia and Emily, they were there and Emily brought me in and and within 10 minutes, I decided I was opening a like a store. So I ran. I didn't even tell Greg. I didn't <laughs> let him know. I went to my mother's and I was like, uh, so I'm opening a store. And she was like, oh, OK. I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, so then I told everybody and everyone was supportive. I think they thought I was a little bit insane. But, you know, everyone got on board and everyone just helped out. And that's really how it all started. It was within like a 10 minute decision from seeing it on Facebook, calling going that like within an hour and then yeah then I decided that's what was gonna happen so yeah and then you got Leith and then yes. you have all these customers and all these customers were always coming in and you're doing you're doing classes and you're mm -hmm. doing like I mean and now it's kind of picking back up after with your zoom stuff yeah. and and doing your sales and making like I mean you have even um when you do like your patterns you do your drawings that people can follow themselves mm-hmm and so now we've come to this point where you guys are like, you know, we get questions all the time and, and you have all these great resources that you've beaded with, like how you said, you know, like uh, Merit and you learn from Robin Delaronde. And so now we're going to jump into what's next with how'd you get to a podcast idea? So, <laughs> so. I, I, I must have shared this story with you. Well, we, oftentimes Margaret and I have conversations, but um, I went, I had shared this earlier with you, Abby, is that I went on a trip with a bunch of ladies, beadwork related trip and myself and another beadworker who will, I will not mention <laughs> just because like, you know, we had some pretty good conversations, but we were driving back on the 401 QEW, you know who you are if you're listening. Um, and some of the ladies in the back were sleeping. It was like a long trip. And we just started talking and talking and talking and talking. And I said, oh, my God, I was really into podcasts. I said, this would be excellent podcast, you know, whatever. And um, the content was just great. And then maybe, I don't know, maybe two years ago, maybe I mentioned it to you or something like, you know, Margaret, like we had these really good conversations, just her and I and other people like in a room. And and often there's really good conversation at bead work classes, beadwork groups. There's 
always great conversation. Little get togethers. Yeah. It's just like fun. And I think the majority of the time it's like ranting and raving. Ranting sometimes. and raving. Yeah. yeah. But <laughs> there's also some like really good wisdom in there from different people and different things and like tricks and tips and all that kind of stuff. And so sometimes we would joke if we're sitting around and we're like, oh my God, that'd be excellent podcast material. Like whatever and whatever. And then she wrote it on Facebook, like I want, leave, <clears throat> you should have a podcast, <laughs> like, you know? <laughs> and it's always been a dream, but I'm like I had mentioned downstairs is that I, I'm not a good follow througher in the terms of like, I'm not a good planner. Anybody who knows me knows that I have great ideas, but I don't like to, I have great ideas. And if somebody can execute them, that's great. And I can keep adding to it, but I'm not a good executioner on my own. So yeah, so like I'm a procrastinator by nature. So that's the thing. But yeah, so she said this and she, you reached out or Greg reached or whatever, however it worked out. And now here Your we are. They came to the, <laughs> yes, to the yeah. rescue. It was crazy because uh, yeah, I made that post and, and it was based off of her idea. But um, I think it was because I was sitting there and of course at home, I don't have anyone else to talk to about beating. So Greg gets an earful all the time and he just kind of sits there, you know? So I'm like, I need that podcast. Where's Leith? I need that podcast. So that's what I was thinking. So I put it online and tagged her in it because uh, this has been her her idea forever. And I'm like, hey, I'll jump on whenever. I don't care. But just making that post, Greg inbox me, you guys inbox me. So I'm also, I like to to do things. I'm, I'm, I'm a doer, but I'm like... Let's just do it and we'll figure it out as we go. Like, I don't plan, really. I don't. I could care less about planning. Sorry, but <laughs> I don't. So I'm like, all right, we'll get these crazy ideas. We'll do it and we'll just see how it goes. We crash and burn. Oh, well, you know, it's it was worth the ride. So <laughs> that's, you know. So what can people look forward to? What do you think we're going to get out of your pot? Like you're in Margaret's like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. For me, you know, there's so many topics I was thinking about, like, yeah. I like to talk about politely, I guess, but the nitty gritty details. And sometimes even that people like to talk about the politics in beadwork. Mm -hmm. Copying, imitation, inspiration, yeah, pricing, uh, those kind of things. Like that's always a hot topic and, and everybody has a different opinion on it and different views. And But I find it so interesting to hear different views on it. Because sometimes like even like that, my emotional wrap up in some of the, the things that happen other people don't feel that way. That's my my stuff that I'm putting into it. So it's kind of interesting and sometimes important to hear other people's views because then it helps you to grow, you to change, see new views, see new. So sometimes it's like, I don't know, this podcast might be for my own growth. Now. <laughs> but, I, yeah. I think too, it's, it's, it's going to be a good way to like inspire people to continue what it is they're doing. And if people who are listening want to be inspired and do different things, and that's good too. But there's also different parameters, like depending on what kind of things, like I'm going to say it because that's just going to say it, is that depending on who's doing the beadwork, they may or may not be allowed in the circle. Not in terms of like listening to the podcast, but, you know, like different people have different styles in the mm -hmm. terms of different nations have their different techniques and different mm -hmm. things. And sometimes, and the reality is, is that because of assimilation and uh, I can't remember the word right oh, now. Oh, um appropriation appropriation you have to be you have to be guarded mm -hmm. and you have to limit and it's not to offend it's to preserve for the people who are who hmm. are doing those different things and nobody wants to say that but that's the truth yeah and um i think if i think when you give voice to that and you acknowledge that 
it doesn't make it so taboo. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the same thing with all different issues in the world, right? Like if you don't talk about those things, it's always a hush hush thing. But when you start talking and speaking truth, not from a negative space, but from a positive space and how to uh, protect rather than be defensive, then it creates positive understanding, understanding, communication, and people know what they can and maybe can't do. And that's okay because that's how life is, right? We can't all be astronauts. I don't know how to, I don't know the rules or the navigations for that kind of thing. Like, (laughs) and I would not trust myself to do that. And no one should trust me to do those kind of things. (laughs) Like that's the reality is that we have to know and we have to be, we have to walk in confidence. And if you're just shying behind, like, I don't want to say that because I don't want to offend anybody. Well, yeah, you're not doing it to offend somebody, but that's the reality, unfortunately. Yeah. Not unfortunately. That is reality, period. Yeah. And you have to get it out there or else yeah. people won't know. And that's something that I kind of go by. My own philosophy is if you don't tell me, then I won't know what it is that I'm doing wrong or yeah. right or whatever. You got it. We got to talk. Yeah, it is. And it's it's funny that she says that because only just recently, um, because I started back up my classes and when you are teaching uh, beadwork, there is a safe space. And normally it's when everybody is knows the same when you're all from either same community, when you're all there is a safety there. So only recently, I don't totally have a big opinion right now or or really about teaching native, teaching non-native and all of that and, and what you should, shouldn't do and all that. That is a big topic, though, that mm-hmm. that everybody has an opinion about. Oh, yeah. For me, I just recently posted that my classes right now, I'm only teaching. Mm-hmm. And and it's not there's not a big giant thing backing that it's because you know what our our culture obviously is at stake here our less our art and all of that is is dying or we're trying to rejuvenate it so i would like to offer that to our community or to all of our surrounding communities you know like all of our Haudenosaunee communities um first and foremost so that's really what it is there's no like Oh, because I'm this or I hate this or it has nothing to do with that. To me, the importance and my responsibility is to teach our own first and foremost, you know. So but sometimes without that, you just see like only and some people do take offense to it, you know, and and I can't please everybody. But that's the way it is. And that's how I feel about it. Mm -hmm. Like I want to teach you know, our, our own first and foremost. Yeah. Fortify your foundations. Exactly. Yeah. It's been amazing talking with you guys. Like, <laughs> I feel like I could be here talking with yeah. you all day. We, <laughs> we could talk go on and on. <laughs> but that is why you ladies are going to have your own show, your own beadwork podcast right here on your Diwaze. So I'm really excited to hear all the crazy topics, <laughs> whether they are uh, controversial or just totally insightful. I'm really looking forward to this project with you guys. Well, yeah, well, for having us. And I hope Margaret will take on some of your um, writing skills there and your notes because oh, I am like a fly by the sea in my pants kind of so gal too. I, so some of them will have. No. <laughs> I'll send you guys some some clips and notes and things. Yes, and yeah. great. Thank you. We're looking forward to uh, seeing what comes out of this next podcast project with you. Thank you for Yay. joining me today. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you. Thanks for listening. I'm Abigail Jacobs with Your DWSA Profiles. Stay up to date with all Your DWSA podcasts, including The Lead, Front Page, The Cycle, and Profiles by following the Your DWSA podcast channel on Apple, Spotify, and Google. 
views and opinions of the guests expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of Redivisay and its employees.